0: Welcome to the Road to Shalom, or I guess welcome back to those of you who've been on this road with me for a while. And to be honest, I suspect some of you who've been wondering if the Road to Shalom had run out of highway are welcoming me back. And I'm honestly glad to be back. It's been a crazy few months of traveling, and I'm sorry there hasn't been a new episode for a couple months. Um, You know, you're probably holding on to the doorknob trying to not get sucked into the black hole of Christmas shopping. That incredible vortex of capitalism that tirelessly labors to convince us Christmas is a selfie rather than a story you know and we intuitively and honestly know that Christmas is supposed to be about Jesus even though it looks like he's pretty much lost his job you know especially this year with uh, Christians having to decide if they want to use the wrapping paper sold by the GOP with the name of the president all over it but I want to tell you don't worry Jesus is still Lord even if he's not part of the holiday founded for him with that battle looming on the horizon let's not get distracted and forget about next week Thanksgiving is just about here I want to ask you what are your thoughts about that holiday I mean is it just a national holiday that Abraham Lincoln instituted about 156 years ago I mean have you ever wondered what God thinks about Thanksgiving if he thinks about it at all You know, I think you might be surprised to discover that God thinks a great deal about Thanksgiving. How do I know? I am so glad you asked. We're going to spend some time this morning on a um, passage of scripture that's pivotal in the Old Testament. This takes two minutes to read, so just bear with me. We're not used to reading long passages of scriptures. We have kind of a verse a day, keeps the devil away approach. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief, everyone a chief, these were leaders, from among them. Moses sent them in to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak whether they're few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. He had not seen this land. Matter of fact, he didn't get to see it until later. Got, Moses did get in the promised land, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but he did. Uh, he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Good option. All right. All um, right. So they went in and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rohab near Labo Hamath. And they came to the valley of Eshcol and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. That's serious grapes. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. And at the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, this is a, probably one of the biggest words in the entire Pentateuch. The people who dwell in it in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, all the ites are there. Okay. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, This is a pivotal event in the history of God's people. A lot of folks don't understand this, but it's at this point that the 40-year wandering begins. Up until this time, it was probably a couple-month journey from Egypt to Canaan. And they're camped on the east side of the Jordan looking into the Promised Land. They could have gone in in a couple days. And if you read this passage, God, in a very real sense, says this. You don't think I love your kids? You don't think I love your wives? You don't think I love your livestock? I'll tell you what, I'm going to kill you and take them into the promised land. And you think to yourself, what in the world would cause God to deal with them so harshly? They were grumbling and complaining. Right? I want to take you on just a little bit of a journey backwards. But well, we're going to go back about a year and three months. All right, They had just left Egypt. They got to Yom Suf. They got to the Red Sea. And uh, they got this body of water in front of them. All right, And they've got the, the chariots of Egypt bearing down on them. And they say to Moses, we wish we had stayed in Egypt. Matter of fact, Moses, if you remember, we didn't want to do this. This wasn't our idea. This is your idea. We would rather have died in Egypt and been slaves in Egypt. They said, we would rather have been slaves in Egypt than to die right here. There's no way out. They were caught from between two sides. You and I have been there. We've been to places where there is no way out. There's a powerful verse in there where God says, you stand still and watch me deliver you. The army that you see today, you're never going to see again. And so he delivers them. And they have a song. It's called the Song of Moses. You may want to memorize it because we're going to sing it in eternity. It's in the book of Revelation. And so they were celebrating. all right. And then 30 days later, they're at the wilderness of sin and there's no food. They run out of food. Their backpacks, they probably had 30 days worth of food in their backpacks, standard standard issue. And they ran out of food. And now they say something different. all right? They said, we'd rather have died with the Egyptians. Would that the Lord had killed us in Egypt. When he, when he wiped everyone else out, the firstborn, the cattle and the fish and the frogs and the gnats and all that sort of stuff, it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt. Well, then it goes further, all right? They get to a place called Rephidim and there's no water there. And this one gets real serious. They accuse God of not caring for their wives and children. This is the first time you hear that. But then they say something really important, I think. They say, is the Lord with us or not? And God says, they tested me there. They said, is the Lord with us? Where's God? Where's God in all this? We're going to go back to that in a minute. But this journey to Numbers, the journey to the grumbling that we saw was was a long journey. Matter of fact, if you look in the book of Numbers, God says that they did this ten times. Ten times. And we've got a record of about five of them in our Bibles. So there's five of them, at least five of them, that we don't have, all right? Then there's this group called the rabble. Who are they? They're a bunch of non-Jews. They're the kind of people that like to be on the winning team. And I think they saw the power of Yahweh in Egypt, and they said, we're leaving. We're getting out of Dodge with these guys. And they went with them. But while they're there, they got really upset because they didn't have any variety in their meal. We want something besides manna. And uh, it's a really powerful verse. If you get a chance, I would really encourage you to look at it. There's a statement in there. They said this. They said, Now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. What had started out as being miraculous had become mundane to them. God gave them adequate food and it wasn't enough. And the word there Now our spirit is dried up. It's a powerful Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word nefesh, And it's the word that's used in Genesis when it said God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. Our closest English word would be soul. And they said our souls are dried up. Our life is dried up. And beloved, if there's anything that will rob us of life, it's complaining. It takes away our joy for sure but it takes away our days it takes away our vitality it takes away a whole lot of stuff and we're going to we're going to zero in on that and then you get to the 10 spies and they come back and I think their real frustration is that there's no rest there's no rest because they found out that they had they had been traveling for about 14 months and now they had to fight and Joshua and Caleb says hey we can do this we can do this. There's big guys, big cities, but we got a big God. We can do this. And they said, We can't. We don't want to. We're tired. We're tired. We're going to go back to Egypt. Egypt is preferable to Canaan. And if you look at this, alright, they're in the wilderness and they said, We have no food. Where's God? We have no water. Where's God? And so they come back from the spying out the promised land and they say, This is a land that flows with milk and honey. Man, we got food. We got water. We got great stuff. But the Anakim are there, these big guys. Goliath was in that family. The things that they craved in the wilderness that God had said, I'll give you in Canaan, when they got to Canaan, those weren't good enough because there was something else they had to face. And so that was, that was the journey there. All right. What I want to do is I want to I look at a couple things. And this is one of the things that happens to us. All right. This happens to me. This has happened to every one of us in this room. Some of you may be in this right now. All right. I'm wrestling with this right now. It's what I call the myth of nostalgia. And it has to do with our view of the past in the face of a difficult present. And this is a great example of it. Their recollection, their recollection of Egypt was like an all-you-can-eat, bottomless, pasta bowl, steak and seafood buffet. That's basically what they saw. Now, where do I get that? Look at the verses. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. You know, this is like a beef fondue. We're just sitting around, kicked back, got a couple of brewskis, you know, we're just sitting here eating, right, and ate bread to the full. Then in the book of Numbers, look at this. We had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Man, we had salad. We had fish. We had bread, we had beef. It was good. Life was good in Egypt. That's their their revisionist view of Egypt. The harsh reality, their occupation while they were there, is a little different when we look at the scriptures. Cruelty and bondage, all right? They made the people ruthlessly work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. During the many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. They groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. So their recollection and their occupation, what was really going on, vastly different. All right? And if you and I examine our hearts, I, I, I would venture to say that every one of us in here uh, has done this. It could have been life was really good before we had kids. Or it could be life was really good at that old job the one that I begged God to get me out of, and he brought me in here. All right. It could be after the loss of a spouse. It could be a whole lot of things. All right? we, tend to, we tend to mythologize the past in the, in the face of a difficult present. And uh, God never wants us to minimize the present, but he really doesn't want us to mythologize the past. And that's a, a really strong temptation for you and I. Um, and that's what really what happened to them. But I want to take a look at uh, what happened to these guys. And then we're going to look at some practical steps for you and I. What were the symptoms of their illness? I mean, what was really... The, the illness was complaining. The illness was grumbling. That's, that's what it is. And I'm going to tell you this. I, w- I want to make sure that you, you, you get this. This is a big deal to God. Grumbling and complaining is a big deal to God. He d- deals with it a ton in the New Testament in ways that we might not normally see. But this story in Numbers. Paul draws from it in his Corinthian letters. It's in the book of Hebrews. It's all throughout the Psalms. Uh, it was a very, very important part of their, of their history. First thing was that they missed the obvious because they were craving a surplus. What do I mean by that? Well, it says, is the Lord with us or not? You Remember that phrase, is the Lord with us or not? You might say, well, that's a reasonable thing to ask. And that is not a reasonable thing to ask when you've got a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Is God with us? Hello, I think so. You know, the question was, and this is something I wrestle with, I'm wrestling with it right now in my life, we sometimes demand a manifestation of God's presence in our life on our terms. God, if you're really real, then you've got to do this now for me. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to any of us in this room, but beloved, we have to be very cautious about understanding who works for who. There's a real spirit that's loose in America that you just you grab God and you and you hold him hostage to some Bible verse. And you say, you gotta do this because you said it. And if you don't, I'll get my lawyer. You know? I see that in in different theologies, but I see it in my own life. You know, God, if you really love me, you'd do this, and you haven't done this, so you obviously don't love me they they missed the obvious because they were looking for more than they needed they had they had food, they had food, it was nutritious food all right. and I, we have there's pancakes in there this morning. there's pancakes in there this morning, like uh, looking at the age distribution in this room, there's a lot of us that have been to men's prayer breakfasts that that were granola bars and water. You know, this is amazing. And I don't know where they're going with this. If we're going to have Eggs Benedict next week or what, you know. (coughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it'd be easy for us over time to wonder, where's the eggs? Where's the eggs? You know, they had adequate food, but it wasn't enough. Second thing, and this is huge. They wanted the blessings of the destination while they were on the journey. And I'm not going to go here, but it should be obvious to many of you, and maybe it's it's new to some of you, the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers is the Christian life. It's the journey between Egypt and Canaan. And that's where we are right now. If you're a believer, you've been brought out of Egypt. If you're not, you're still there. But we are on a journey to the, to the promised land. We are on a journey to an eternity with God. All right? And what happens in the book of Numbers is that they wanted the blessings of the destination while they're on the journey. And I don't know if if you've been told this. I had to learn it the hard way because no one told me. But it's all throughout the scripture is that life really is hard. And being a Christian sometimes makes it harder. Not because of the absence of God's grace, but because of the presence of a whole different perspective on life. If you're a believer, you're more sensitive to evil than an unbeliever. You're more sensitive to injustice than an unbeliever. You're more sensitive to wholeness and purity than an unbeliever. And so our longings are greater. Our indignations are greater over injustice and wrong. And consequently, life sometimes is just a struggle. Some of you in this room are begging God to show you His will for your next step. Unbelievers don't struggle with that. They just move ahead, do what they feel like doing. And here you have them, they wanted milk and honey. This is a great quote by Billy Sundays. He said, if you want milk and honey on your bread, you've got to go to the land of giants. And that was the truth. The milk and honey was in Canaan, and their grumbling was that they didn't have it then. And when they got there and had it, they weren't happy either, because they were always looking for something else. Third thing. And this is the big thing. They revise the past to surpass the present rather than standing on it to face it. Someone told me this once, and I, I, I've not forgotten it because it's true. A guy told me once, an old saint, he was about my age now when I was in my 30s, but he said, Fran, he said, you are going to need, listen to this, you are going to need a long memory of God's goodness to make the journey. You are going to need a long memory of God's goodness to make the journey. And that was the thing that they missed. They had, and, and and the ten plagues in Egypt, that didn't take place at a weekend conference. If you study that, that had to have been over at least a year's time, maybe longer, because they had to replenish the crops and the livestock in order for some of these plagues to make sense. And so uh, it, they, they had a long memory of God's power and outstretched arm. And they lost that. They didn't they didn't even think about it. And if you're not in the crunch, you will be, and when you're in the crunch, uh the only thing that will get you through it is having a long memory of God's goodness. Um, and they didn't have that. Alright? Other thing they did, the actual illness, and this is where we're gonna really put the cookies here on the bottom shelf, but they had disregarded what they had. In the face of what they craved There's a the, the word for crave there they craved up meat, they craved other food is a really strong Hebrew word. It's a passionate, almost a lust. So they really wanted this. and this is the this is the heart of it, you guys. This is the thing that I want us to look at is that it came from ingratitude and I want to show you something here. This is probably one of Satan's oldest traps in gratitude. matter of fact, it may surprise you. You don't even need a sin nature to fall into this. How can I say that? Because this is what Satan did to Eve. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or pondered it. I just got stuck on it one day. I thought, you know, the scripture says that the serpent was the craftiest animal that God had made. And you read Genesis 3 and I think, this is a no-brainer. This is not crafty. You know? Here, eat this. But if you look at the text closely, you'll find out something that he did. And he did this exact same thing. He came up to Eve, and he put his arm around her, or his tail, or however he did this, and he says, Did God say that you can't eat any of this? And she said, No, no, no. We can eat all that. We just can't eat that. And then he turned to her and said, Well, now that you brought it up, let's talk about this one. He got her to shift her focus, from what she had to what she didn't have. And she didn't have a sin nature yet. She hadn't fallen yet. That tells me the power, the power of this. Of shifting my focus from what I have to what I don't have. Uh, We had a great example of this when we were um, raising our kids. Ben remembers this. Ben was 12 years old. My wife grinds her own flour you know, my kids had homemade oatmeal with brown sugar and whipped cream on top, carrot muffins with raisins and, and frosting on top, uh, homemade bread in their sandwiches, and they were frustrated because they didn't have lunchables and all the stuff that their friends had. And one day, Jill just said, "I've had it. I'm not doing this anymore." So I came home that day. She was in tears. I lined all four kids up, it looked like a cartoon. Had all four kids on the couch, and I just went ballistic on them. I said, "This is this is it. Thirty days. This is like forty years. Thirty days." 30 days you are having nothing but pot pies and baked potatoes. Breakfast cereal is going to be that puffed wheat that comes in the 500-pound bags that has nothing in it but dust, no sugar, nothing. You're getting, you're getting Wonder Bread. You wonder if it's bread. We'll give you some of that stuff. You're making your own lunches. It's over. And then Jill took all the money we saved from the food budget. She and I had pork steak, broccoli, cheese sauce, all this sort of stuff. And then we went and got the, they had a thing called generic back then. That was before Walmart engulfed the world. But they had these little white boxes with black print. It was just, I mean, who knows how many pounds of rat droppings were in these pot pies that we got. You got like four for a buck. All right. I'm not joking. Ben lost weight. Ben lost weight. Had to tighten his belt. And uh they... From that point on, I'm serious, from that point on our kids never they never complain. All right? Now if you do that today, you go to jail and your kids go to someone else, but it worked worked good for us. Um, Because grumbling is part of our framework. We're born with it. We are born with a capacity and a passion to crave what we don't have and disregard what we do. And you see this with Eve. An ungrateful heart walks away from God. This one is a very sobering, and I hope you understand the seriousness with which I'm sharing this. There's a a passage of scripture, Romans chapter one, all right? You won't find this phrase in a theology textbook, but I call it the toilet bowl swirl of mankind, all right? You read Romans one and it starts out and you end up with people just in all these sexual perversions and they're glorifying this behavior. It's just an awful description of the downward trend of the human race, all right? It starts, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's the first step away from God, is a refusal to give thanks. It's a very serious thing. I think that's why God is so adamant about dealing with it. It despises God's grace. God said that they despised me. They despised me. They had lost track of every single thing I had done for them. Is God with us? Well, look around. You got food. You got protection. You got a plan of God for your life. And the third thing they rejects the will of God, or the fourth thing. All right. don't how can I say that? Because Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5:18 says, "Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances." This is God's will for you. It is God's will that you give thanks. Not necessarily for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. We'll get to that, but giving thanks is an issue of focus. It causes me to have to turn my heart. You and I can only look, our heart can only look in one direction at one time. Your heart can only look in one direction at one time. And giving thanks causes us to look at him. That's why you can give thanks in the face of death. You can give thanks in the face of poverty because it's just it's turning the gaze of my heart. God wouldn't want me to be grateful for the death of anyone. It says that in Scripture. He doesn't delight even in the death of the wicked. So he doesn't want me to. But I can give thanks because that's a gaze of the heart. That's all it is. That's all it is. Alright? I want to take a, a positive look here. This is where I fail. And I counted these, it's real interesting. Forty-six times in Paul's writing, he talks about giving thanks. Whenever Paul talks about gratitude, it involves our mouths. And I'll tell you this, you don't give thanks because you have a grateful heart. Giving thanks produces a grateful heart. So if you and I are waiting for a grateful heart before we verbally, verbally give thanks... It's not going to happen. And I struggle with this. This is a huge struggle. And I don't know if it's part I can say, well, God's given me prophetic gifts, and that's my job to see what's missing in the church. Well, yeah, but you know what? I'm constantly complaining. And it kills my wife. It kills my spiritual life. It dries up my, nefiche, my soul. And I'm not just saying that to try to identify. It's a, it's a huge struggle in my, in my life. If I give thanks, it turns not only my heart to God, But others as well. Matter of fact, Paul said this is a powerful apologetic. Do all things. You heard this? Do all things without grumbling or complaining. All right? Keep reading. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, in which you shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You shine as lights in the world in the midst of a twisted culture. By what? By not grumbling or complaining. I can promise you, you already know this, some of you are leaving this room to go into business meetings and it's going to be a black heart session. People are going to get together over lunch, they're going to congregate around the copier, they're going to meet for coffee, and they're going to complain about the boss, about the workload, about the absence of something in some department. And be careful. Be careful. There's a difference between being responsible leaders and, and change agents, then, jumping in with the rabble. I saw that there's probably few places on earth where that occurs more than in the ministry. Christian leaders getting together, teachers in Christian schools. I got to the place where I didn't even want to go into the teacher's lounge to eat lunch because it was just an opportunity for this to come out of me. And it didn't take much. You didn't have to squeeze me very hard to get this stuff out of me. It's kind of like a pimple, all right? Giving thanks verbally is the will of God. And I'm I'm using the word verbally here. It means using words, using my mouth. Paul even goes so far as to say that giving thanks is supposed to replace manly talk or locker room talk. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That is so uncommon for us as men. Get a group of guys around a table like this, you know, Uh, And we're giving thanks. That doesn't even fit, does it? But it's supposed to. It's so foreign to us. And last of all, Scripture says that it's a sacrifice of praise. Psalm 50, verse 23 is not in your notes, but it says, He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. It's the opposite of despising God. All right? Couple questions, couple thoughts. 60%, accounted of 60% of the references to Egypt are outside of the book of Exodus. 60% of the references to Egypt. What's the point of that? Because God wants us to remember where we've been, not just where we're bound. If nothing else is going good in your life right now, there's at least the grounds to thank God that you belong to Him. And if you didn't have Him, you'd still be in the same circumstances, only without Him. What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth when someone asks you how you're doing? Try this for... uh, just try it for today. You have to be careful who you do it with. But when someone says how you're doing, let the first word that comes out of your mouth be God. The word God. And I think you'll find yourself having to fill that in. Either God is good. You know, people say, how's life? Uh, what do you say when people say, how's life? I usually say, life sucks. I mean, <laughs> it, um, you know. And you say, well, you can't say that. Well, you know, life is hard. Life is good. I have a lot of those shirts. That's not always the case. I'll say that, but then I'll put a comment and say, "But you know what? God has been good to me, and God is good to me." You know? I mean, I, it's one of the things I love about my African American friends. Man, you the, constantly, God is good all the time. You hear that? You keep hearing that. I hear it in checkout lines. I see. I mean, I and I love hearing that because it's a reminder to me that it's true. And life is not good all the time. But God is good all the time. Today, as you're, as you're talking to people and someone says, how are you doing? Say it. Just say, you know, God is really good to me. If you've got food, if you've got breath, and I know you've got food, and I know you've got breath, you know, I should be grateful. Um, probably one last one here that I think would be worth mentioning. If you understand that ingratitude and grumbling is built in, hardwired to your children. You gave it to them, by the way, alright? So that's where they got it. Where is gratitude in the hierarchy of values I want to teach my kids? Bottom line for you and I is that you and I have a tendency to complain. And the solution to this, the solution to it is verbally, verbally expressing gratitude to God. It works good to people, too. Thank people for opening the door. Thank people for serving you your food. Thank people for you know, giving you change. Thank people all the time, be grateful. But particularly be grateful for what you have and don't fall prey to focusing on what you don't. Well, we discovered that the path to a grateful heart is through a thankful mouth. The bad news is that our default setting, the unfortunate fruit of that straight line from our own heart to that of Adam, our ancient father, that default setting is ingratitude. But knowing both of these things can make a difference. In fact, it actually provides us with both the insight and the motivation to be people of gratitude, to be different, not just next week on Thursday, but every day for the right reason. And that whole thing about the myth of nostalgia, wow. I mean, that was that was heavy, wasn't it? I mean. For you and I to revise the past so that it becomes preferable to the present because the present is difficult, well, beloved, that's just a prescription for despondency. You know why? Because the present is always going to be difficult on one hand, and on the other hand, the past can never really be our focus because our hope is in the end of the story, not any particular portion of it while we're in it. We can't long for the days and the joys of the destination while we're still on the journey. And so as we move into this Thanksgiving season, I really want to encourage you to give thanks verbally in the midst of every human intersection you find yourself in, okay? And let me leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul along those lines. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful.